This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And so I want to give a special thank you to Melissa Brown, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 453 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing season two of the HBO series His Dark Materials based on the novel The Subtle Knife by Philip Pullman, who was our guest back in episode 76. And we previously discussed season one back in episode 394, so definitely check that out if you missed it. And this will include spoilers for all of season two, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Erin Lindsay, making her 28th appearance on the show. She's the author of the Bloodbound series of epic fantasy novels and the Nicholas Lenoir series of paranormal detective novels, which she writes under the name E.L. Tetensor. The Silver Shooter, the latest novel in her Rose Gallagher series of historical mysteries, is out now. So, Erin, welcome to the show. Thanks, as always, for having me. The next up, we've got Sarah Lynn Mishner, making her 22nd appearance on the show. She's a trans-supporting Ravenclaw Trekkie maker feminist who writes at Medium and lives in Connecticut with a Renaissance engineer and a small zoo. So, Sarah, welcome to the show. It is always the highlight of my pandemic. <laughs> And also joining us today is Sam J. Miller, making his eighth appearance on the show. He's the Nebula award-winning author of the novels Blackfish City, The Art of Starving, and Destroy All Monsters. And his short fiction appears in magazines such as Lightspeed, Nightmare, and Strange Horizons. His new novel, The Blade Between, is out now. So, Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I feel like such a new jack with only eight appearances. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to say, yo, Sam, it's been uh, a year since I last talked to you, since our last His Dark Materials panel. So I wanted to catch up with you just quickly before we get into the show. So I mentioned in the bio there that you have a new book out. So you want to tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. It's called The Blade Between. It's a gentrification ghost story about my hometown of Hudson, New York, um, and um, sort of like captures all of my complicated feelings from 15 years as a community organizer, um, plus whale ghosts. And tomorrow is Sam's (laughs) birthday. And my husband wants you to know that tomorrow is my birthday. Oh. <laughs> very cool. Happy birthday. That's funny, you know, because my, my girlfriend, Stephanie, we have a running joke where whenever I'm editing the show, she's just pretending that she's in, in the background and just throws in one random comment into each episode. And then people listening are like, who the heck was that? Nice. And so that was, we kind of had a little bit of that the going ghost on in there. The so, um <laughs> Um, so Sam, I, you know, I mean, obviously a lot of people, authors I've talked to have kind of had a rough time with, uh, you know, getting the word out about their new books because of the pandemic. Kind of what's that been like for you in terms of uh, getting the word out? Oh, it's a delightful nightmare. You know, I mean, you can never complain about having a book out in the world. It's wonderful. I'm super excited. I'm really proud of this book and a lot of great, it's gotten a lot of great reviews and people seem to be responding to it. But of course, also no one's going to bookstores, no one's going to libraries, people aren't browsing the way they used to. So yeah, it's, it's terrible and horrible. And I, I feel like, you know, I've seen so many, I feel especially bad for like debut novelists, because it's such a really, it's a really rough time to debut. But yeah, of course, I, I wish 
I wish bookstores were a thing and libraries were a thing more. Um, but um, I'm just, you know, happy to have it out there and, and to be writing. Have you been on any uh, podcasts or blogs or anything talking about it? Oh my uh, God. Yes. Are you supposed to be exclusive? How embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> no, David, there's nothing in my life that the Geeks no Guide one to the else. Galaxy. <laughs> Good. Thank you for catching that trick question I just got. Because I, I, I was about to fall into it and saying, yes, I'm dancing on every street corner I can, uh, shilling in every podcast I possibly can. Uh, if any of your <laughs> listeners have podcasts and want to talk about gay ass horror or gentrification, <laughs> ho- holler at me. <laughs> Yeah, I so saw it's uh, it's James Baldwin meets Stephen King. It's kind of the tag. Really, one. like our reviewer said that, and I never realized that's all I ever wanted to hear about my writing. <laughs> <laughs> I was also just curious, Sam. I mean, like you know, you're always riding your bike around New York City, or have you still been able to do that uh, throughout the pandemic? I will confess that I have let my biking slack off considerably since the pandemic started, and there's not places to go. Um, or at least it's just advisable to stay the F inside as much as possible. Um, so in the summer, I was trying to bike every day, but um, lately, not so much. Yeah. Well, you should come out to Austin sometime. You can go hiking with me. Lots of uh, hiking trails out here where you never see anybody. That sounds great. I'll hop on a plane. Just as soon <laughs> to, as that's to the thing. COVID hotspots yeah. of Texas. <laughs> right. I'll, <laughs> I'll bring one COVID hotspot to another. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I went hiking yesterday and I'm mentioning this because I went hiking in the super snow. And so if you hear a random buzzing noise now and then, that is uh, neighbors with snowblowers because it is that time of year up Amazing. in the Canada. So there's a lot of snow, like real snow, not New York snow. <laughs> yeah, Canada, I have to say, Aaron, Canada just sounds like a horrible place with all the snow and no post-credit scenes. It just seems very... I mean, I don't know, Dave. Maybe you should get on my Instagram feed and see how ridiculously beautiful it is. <laughs> I mean, I can't speak for like, you know, the, the vast windswept prairies or whatever, but I live in the Rocky Mountains and it's bomb. Let me just, I'll just explain that there was no, you know, in season two of His Dark Materials, there was a post credit scene that apparently didn't make it to the Canada, to the Canadian uh, audience. So <laughs> that's what that was a reference to. Oh, Tragic. I see. I didn't even get it. And it was my own joke. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> I told you I wasn't firing on all cylinders this morning. <laughs> All right, let's get into the show. So if you, uh, hopefully you listen to our uh, panel on uh, season one. Um, but if you didn't, I'll just quickly explain that I've only read book one in the series. Um, and I'd always planned to read book two in preparation for watching the second movie, but then that never happened. And so then I, I never got back to the, um, to the books. And then like now I don't know, I don't have time to, to read the book for this. So, um, but our other panelists, I think all read all the books so they can hopefully fill me in on anything that, uh, that we need to know from the books. Um, but then the other thing is that, oh, and then uh, the other thing I want to mention is that since I haven't read book three, we're going to try not to have spoilers for book three. Like I told you guys over email, it's not a big deal if there's any slip ups, but like we're going to try to make this so that people who haven't read book three can um, can listen and you know not get any spoilers. Um, but I guess just the first thing I wanted to bring up is that, you know, last time we were talking about how when the, the feature film came out in 2007, that it was hugely controversial and there was a big boycott campaign that possibly killed the movie, you know, the, the box office performance in the U.S. And, and maybe even killed the studio, New Line Studios. 
Um, and I've not heard any controversy at all about this show. So I was just curious if anyone, did I miss anything or has there been like literally no controversy? I, about I think this? that the, the, the movie itself killed the, uh, the, the box office. Get out of my head. <laughs> I mean, they, you know, they, I, we, obviously we talked about this at length, uh, the last episode, but they, they really did, um, you know, sort of remove all of the meat of the story in order to not piss off the church. And then they pissed off the church anyway. So they ended up with an inferior product that was still, you know, boycotted. Um, but I actually think that they, um, I, I honestly think that the church is nowhere near as powerful now. Yeah, as it was when the movie came out, because, uh, you know, at this point, the church whines and, and moans and nobody really cares. I mean, I remember when it was a big deal when Sinead O'Connor ripped up a picture of the Pope and people who weren't even Catholic were offended. Like, why? Why would why? And then, you know, everything came out. Uh, about what was actually going on in the church and why she did that. And, you know, even though obviously it was not really a secret among the smaller communities at that time. But, uh, you know, so I feel like the, the problems of the church now have become so mainstream that people get that it's okay to criticize the church and to uh, ask, you know, provoking questions. And I was thinking about this last night where I'm like, it really is amazing how overt they are being in this series about the criticism and even how, how overt the criticism is in the books. You know, the, the books actually go into, you know, one of the witches, I think, talks about, uh, the, the children who, whose genitals are cut, uh, as part of religion. And so the, the fact that, you know, all of this gets in the book and that, uh, the series is able to really make a series for adults, not even for a second considering making it for children. It's, it's an extraordinary accomplishment. But, but so you say, Sarah, that the church whines and moans and nobody really pays attention, but did they even bother whining and moaning about this show? And I just didn't see it or have they just even given up on the whining? I think it's a little, little from column A and a little from column B, you know, like, uh, I think that because of the internet being so fractured in co different communities right now, uh, you know, we just aren't, I am not paying as much of attention as I was 10 years ago when I had, for instance, more church friends that I grew up with that I have long since defriended because of the Trump debacle. And uh, yeah, that's what we're going to call it. We're going to call it a debacle <laughs> rather than a presidency. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I, I feel like I have sort of sequestered myself off further and further from those communities who might say something. Um, but I, I think in general, they, they used to have more of a collective sense of power among sort of the people who didn't care one way or the other, you know, the, the sort of uncritical masses. And I think that that, that sense of power has gotten a lot smaller. I think it's also worth pointing out that it's a very different church than it was in 2007 and a very different Pope. Um, yeah. And I, 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 the messaging is, I mean, it's dramatically different on a number of fronts and, and whether it's as dramatically different as we would like it to be, you know, notwithstanding, um, I suspect that this church would anyway be positioned differently than its predecessor um, in terms of how it would see things like this. It's speculation, but, um, but you know, Pope Benedict and Pope Francis are famously rather different <laughs> um, in their approaches to pretty much everything. 
It, it but has anybody seen any controversy at all? It looks like, like there was some really limited, like an article in uh, the Jesuit publication, American Magazine. Um, there's some very limited um, criticism that is pretty chill. The Catholic League didn't put out a statement in any form. Um, and uh, there was a really good review in Christianity Today um, that says that the show's, by the way, th this is not stuff I know off the top of my head. This is a sci-fi wire article uh, that the show's religious <laughs> commentary is less about the church itself and more about uh, authority run amok according to Christianity Today. So uh, yeah, I think that's a great insight that the Catholic Church is really different now. Its power in society is different. The Pope is different. Um, I also think that like, you know, historically, it's been important to sort of draw a distinction between the Catholic Church and the Catholic League and other sort of like independent uh, uh, entities that would claim to be the voice of Catholics in America or elsewhere. And that those groups, too, have really um, lost a lot of power, um, especially as some of the hills they wanted to die on, like gay rights, um, have really, um, yeah, they died on those hills. Um, you know, yeah. a lot of a lot of conversations have really shifted in a way that no longer people are like, oh, what does uh, how will I decide what to think of this uh, social issue? Let me ask the Catholic League. Yeah. And I think another piece of that puzzle, too, is that, frankly, you know, when you're talking about controversy uh, and culture wars, what what registers on the radar uh, is of uh, orders of magnitude more dramatic than than something like this. I think we've been so whipped up in culture war conversations um, that are just so much bigger and more important than this one that, you know, how institutions or individuals feel notwithstanding, this has probably seemed like such such a minnow um, and when we have bigger fish to fry. There, nothing is more important than <laughs> fantasy movies. I, mean... I will not stand for this. <laughs> Well, nothing except fantasy television shows. <laughs> well, and cerebral ones, right? I like it. I just think it's uh, it's a bit like uh, sort of the observations about the way comedy has shifted over the last ten years or so, where you know what used to be sort of absurdist and surreal is is unfortunately you know thoroughly in the mainstream. And I and I just I just wonder if if this is controversial enough to qualify as controversy in in the current climate. Is I guess what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, no, I I don't think it is. I mean, that's sort of you know what I'm what I'm getting at. I was just curious if there was any controversy. But I I mean I I was really really into the the movie coming out because I I felt like you know oh this is like you know really um, promoting atheism or like making people think and, and all this stuff. And yeah, I, I, so I, I was really looking forward to the the sequel, which, you know, where things get more and more kind of overtly, um, you know, skeptical or whatever. Um, and just to have this come out and have it be, you know, it's, it's in, in such a different, yeah, such a different environment where it feels like, oh, I guess this is our, we already kind of won this one is just kind of an interesting, um, I think yeah, it's interesting. I think it's interesting in that Jesuit um, article, Jesu Jesuit publication article I mentioned, it looks like um, while it does criticize or talk about the fact that it's a really uh, blatant critique of Catholicism, um, the article is mostly about how it, the message that the TV show has blunted is uh, Pullman's ecological message and that the, the, um, 
sort of deep resonance that the that the books have for humanity's um, you know need to find balance in nature and to exist in balance with the environment has you know is largely lost in the TV show, although there are a few nods to it. So I do think it's interesting that you know climate change and ecology is a conversation that has shifted so much. So that that is that is the thing that re- that at least this one religious voice um, is paying paying a lot more attention to than whether or not it's pro-Catholic or anti. Well, that's, an, you know, I haven't read the second book, so you'll you'll have to fill me in on that. But let's come back to that in a bit. First, I just want to set up the kind of the premise of what's going on here at the beginning of season two. So basically, um, you know, our, our heroes, our young heroes, Lyra and Will, have both found their way to this parallel world city called Chittagatsi or something like that. And they meet each other. And in this city, um, there had been people... You guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but there there have been people who have been kind of cutting holes into other worlds and they cut one hole too many and let these monsters called specters in. And specters are these sort of dark clouds that go around. They feed on dust, which clusters, which is the sort of magical, magical, invisible substance that clusters around adults and not children. And so the um, specters feed on dust, and so they kind of latch on to adults and sort of suck out their souls, I guess, and turn them into sort of mindless zombies. And so all the adults have fled from the city, and there's just a bunch of kids who got left behind, kind of in little gangs, um, you know, wandering the city. Um, And so this is where Will and Lyra find themselves. So I guess just um, what were your initial impressions of, uh, of season two? Uh, so how about Sarah? What were your initial impressions of season two? I was incredibly happy. Um, they, I, I don't think I've ever seen a series that it has been as faithful to the books while improving on a couple of things. Um, you know, they, I, I, I wouldn't even necessarily classify them as changes um, other than a very specific instance or two that we'll probably talk about later. But um you know, the, the things that they've improved or have expanded on feel like they're coming directly from Philip Pullman. Um, and it, it's just so seamless and beautiful. And I'm just really delighted with it. Um, and I feel like the production quality is just through the roof. Like they, they built like an entire set of Chirigatsi, like a whole, like they, they did a whole, uh, breakdown of all of the sculptures that were created for the backgrounds and things that will only pop up for a few seconds on footage, but everything makes it look so real and so authentic. So I was just absolutely blown away. How about Aaron? First impressions of season two? Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, It is much like season one, really, really faithful to the books um, and where it does deviate, it deviates in a way that feels organic and makes sense. Um, and I, just a second on the production value, some of the visuals were were absolutely amazing. And you have this unmistakably Italian city in Kauai. <laughs> Pretty sure it's Kauai anyway. Um, just like this this island, um, and and you you believe that city, you believe it's real. It's it's exactly. It reminds me of sort of. Um, of the care that they took on the Lord of the Rings set in not only creating something that was beautiful, but then wearing it down and making it look genuinely eroded and with patina and all of it just, it was just so well done. I loved the visuals when they used the subtle knife to cut between worlds. Um, just 
the way that sort of watery membrane between worlds slices open and just releases this whoosh of air. Um, I think I would have liked the specters to look a little less like Dementors, but that being said, I'm not really sure where you could go with that. And toward the end, um, when we get sort of to spend a little bit more time with the specters, um, that visual becomes more interesting as well. So, I mean, get, just getting lost in that alone was was a, was a treat. Yeah, I, I totally agree about the visuals. I mean, I thought the same thing about season one, but all the sort of landscape shots and things, I just think are so beautiful. And the um, you know, the each of the characters in Lyra's world has a animal companion called a demon, and I thought they were quite well done in season one. But I thought I thought the technology has improved even for season two because uh, some of the shots of the demons I, I really thought looked very very convincing. And I'm usually not really big on CGI characters, um, but I, I thought they were they were really good. Um, how about Sam? First impressions, season two? Yeah, I really loved it. Um, definitely second what's already been said. The 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 look and feel of it was so compelling. Um, my big problem, if I had a problem with the first season, which I, I also really loved it, but for me, um, a lot of the visuals in the first season felt really like I could tell they were CGI. And in some cases, the CGI was not as good as it could be or disappointing, or I could tell when corners were being cut, like especially the polar bear fight. Um, so this, this didn't, it never bothered me in season two. I thought that they had really upped their game. I thought there was a really great, um, you know, uh, blending of CGI and practical effects, which is like this, the more, the more time goes on, the deeper into the digital age, the CGI age we get, the more I appreciate movies made with practical effects. And so, yeah, the sets of, of Chitagatze were so gorgeous. And so much of that was like real stuff. Um, Although I will say that I did, I did have a moment of rage in one of the recap or sort of behind the scenes things. The guy who designed it talked about, oh, I went to 140 locations and I couldn't find one that was right. So we decided to make our own. And I'm like, I want the job where I go to 140, <laughs> 140 no awesome old cities and then say, nah, going to make my own. <laughs> it seems like there's a, a moral hazard involved there, too, because you like go to, you know. I don't know, Venice or something like that. This isn't going to work. We're going to have to go to Rome and then we're going to have to go, you know, like uh, it just seems like there's a perverse incentive there to, you know, keep saying no to things. Yeah, I really loved it. I have one problem. I don't know if we should hold off on our problems (laughs) uh, and talk about them later. You tell me. It's not, uh, it's not it good prob- to bottle up your problems. <laughs> how, how, is this a problem that crops up in the first couple episodes? No, it's sort of, a, I'd say it grows as the, as the season goes on. Um. All right. Well, why don't you hold off on it for the moment? Gotcha. It'll like it's um, like we'll keep we'll keep people in suspense. What does Sam? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's Sam's problem? <laughs> Hopefully, you'll just be like getting angrier and angrier thinking about it as we go. That's and good then, TV. Yeah. <laughs> It'll just make for a lot of fireworks when we finally get to it. Um. I mean, I th- I think the um. I guess the positive thing I want to um mention just off the bat is that we get introduced to a new character in this season. Um, I mean, more than one, but in particular, there's this new character, Dr. Mary Malone, who is a physicist at Oxford that uh, that Lyra meets when she travels from Chittagatze to, you know, to to Will's Earth. And I I just thought this character was absolutely fantastic. I mean, she seems like a real person. She seems like a real scientist. Um, And just our our introduction to her basically is, is Lyra comes into her office at Oxford and just telling her all, telling Mary all the stuff about dust and the magisterium and everything. 
And obviously, Mary doesn't know what to make of this. And Elira says, um, well, here, I, I found you using this um, alethiometer. Ask me something I can never know, and I'll tell you. And Mary says, well, okay, um, what did I do before I became a scientist? And Lyra consults the alethiometer, and she says, uh, you were a nun, but you stopped believing and you left. And obviously, Mary is incredibly, you know, um, struck by this, this revelation. And I just, I just found that moment. It just gave me chills. Um, but pretty much everything with Mary in this show, I just loved. Um, I thought she was such a great addition to the, to the cast. So I guess I'll, I'll just throw that out there. Um, how does everyone feel about, about this, this new character? Uh, Sarah. Yeah. I mean, she, it, it was absolutely how I had pictured her from the books um, because she's this wonderfully um, sort of motherly scientist. And that's the sense that I got from the character in the book. And so to see that come to life um, was just really extraordinary. And I, I just, I mean, to me, she's just the character. Um, so I, I really just really felt like it was again, you know, the whole, this whole series is wonderfully cast. Um, but, and her character is fascinating. And I love that, you know, again, there's that connection to the sort of tenuous relationship with, with people who are curious about religion and curious about, you know, big questions and, the natural fit of somebody starting off as a nun and becoming a physicist, which makes perfect sense to me. Um, so, you know, <laughs> having been raised religious and, 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 you know, departed from that when I was a teenager. So yeah, I, I loved the character. Yeah. I guess uh, the other new character that comes to mind is Will's father, who we meet, I think fairly early on. Um, but there's this whole subplot involving, um, the Lee Scoresby character, uh, searching for basically searching for Will's father. Um, and sort of my, you know, one of the things I said about season one, I went back and listened to it is that I felt like it was, you know, um, sort of a, you know, a, a really great, but sometimes odd mix of like a children's story and an adult story. And I felt that more, I think, in season two. And this would probably be my main criticism, um, that comes up initially is that I felt like, the the Lee Scoresby storyline felt more like a like a YA fantasy movie, and then the stuff with Mary Malone and um, Mrs. Coulter felt much more dark and interesting and adult. Um, to the extent that there was, a, I felt a little bit of like a whiplash going back and forth between the two stories. I think what you have to remember, though, is that you know this character Lyra. Uh, you know, if I think that one of the cool things about the book is that. She has two parents who are incredibly dysfunctional in terms of being parents, just on a basic level. Uh, her father basically doesn't care whether or not she even exists. I mean, he does, but he also doesn't. Um, and her mother is loving and wants to possess her and protect her, but doesn't want what's best for her and does not have, you know, her best interest in mind, even on a very basic level. And was, you know, both of, of her parents were willing to murder her best friend. Uh, only one of them eventually did. Uh, and so I think the Lee Scoresby character I've always loved because he has this courtly love for Lyra and he is, is enchanted with her. Uh, and he's kind of a, one of the, 
sort of father replacements for her, one of the parent replacements for her throughout the series. She has a few, you know, she has York Bernison, she has uh, Mary Malone. And so I, I think it's a wonderful thing for children to have this, uh, you know, children's books that say sometimes our parents are not where parental love comes from, are not where role models come from. Um, and it's, to me, it's, it's one of the parts of the book that feels subversive. And so I like to see that in the series and the fact that the series is bringing that out as well, uh, you know, is, is really wonderful. How about Aaron? What'd you think of that YA versus adult thing? Um, I, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, and I, I think it links to an issue that I have with it that I, that I raised in season one. I wonder how much of that feeling that you got was actually um, part anything really to do with the plot in and of itself or how much of it was down to the performances. And I have to say, once again, love the man, <laughs> but I just don't buy uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda in this role. I, I think he acts like he's in a children's movie. Um, there's, there's something about his delivery that feels children's movie to me. Um, which was even more jarring juxtaposed against the accidentally creepy performance <laughs> for Will's dad. And I think some of that might be just my in my head because that particular actor I know best as Moriarty from the BBC Sherlock series. And maybe I just can't exercise that demon from my head. But for whatever reason, <laughs> whether he means to be or not, he's just super creepy. And so having this kind of creepy, vaguely psychopathic performance opposite this very sort of I felt like children's movie, very Disney performance going on by Miranda was it, that to me was a bit of dissonance that, that really made those, that subplot didn't work for me either. But I'm, so I agree with you. It didn't, it was not as effective as the rest. Um, but I suspect for me anyway, that was less down to what was happening and more down to how it was happening or how it was portrayed. I'm not familiar with that actor. Um, but I thought he was super, super weird. I yeah. mean, um, you, you, you gotta watch season two of Fleabag. Oh my God. So good. <laughs> so good. And, and, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. I did want to go back to Mary Malone for a second. Um, because I think one of the things that's nice about an adaptation that is done in a series as opposed to a movie is it does in principle give you the freedom to explore a little bit in the margins. Um, and I will say there's a huge asterisk here because I, watching this season in particular was really struck by how little I remember from the books. Um, it's been like 20 years since I read them and I found myself at various points going, is that in the book? And then looking it up and going, yep, yep, that's in the book. Why don't I remember <laughs> it? That's weird. So, you know, put that asterisk on what I'm about, what I'm about to say, but I don't recall there being a lot of kind of exploring Mary Malone as a, as a person of faith or a person of former faith. Um, and I think that would be really interesting because one of the things that I said when we talked about season one, which I stand by is it would be nice to have people who were people of faith who, you know, believed in God and even maybe believed in the magisterium, um, but were not horrible, evil, deluded people. Um, and one of the things that I have always found super fascinating, not being a person of faith myself, I'm, I'm always really compelled by the tortured person of faith, the John Donne type, um, Bono type, I really want to believe, but man, you make it tough kind of, kind of religious person. 
who's who feels it in their heart and it's always at war with their head. And I, I can sort of see a former nun occupying that space, a former nun who becomes a physicist who still believes on some fundamental level, but just thinks that the way that it's been articulated in the world and the way humans have interpreted it as religion is deeply fucked. I would love yeah. to see that. Well, well, and like, um, you know, all the magisterium characters we see are all just pretty much, you know, straight up cartoonishly evil. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I didn't find them all that interesting either, but I, I want to get Sam back in here. Sam, what do you think about anything we're saying here? Yeah. I mean, I also want to go back to, um, the professor, uh, to Mary and her amazingness. And also specifically that scene you cited about the alethiometer. It also contains one of my fa- I think the most important lines of the, of the, of the season, which is when after, um, Lyra tells her, you know, you lost your faith and you left, she says, in my world, you could, they wouldn't let you. And that like captures so much about the difference between the worlds and the sort of key to um, Mrs. Coulter's character and the, the and sort of where she's coming from and sort of um, the 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 inner turmoil that she feels moving between her relatively repressive world and and Lyra uh, and and our sort of like relatively less repressive world. Um, I think it's really it was really powerful. It it, it communicates so much about what gender is. Um, and, and in, in, in Lyra's world. Um, and, and so, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, uh, a thousand percent agree. And I talked about this with the last season. Like, I thought that Lynn Manuel Miranda, um, was not the right choice for this character. I thought that the, um, to me, he's just always Broadway. He's always acting. He's always performing for the last row. Um, so it's very big. It's very telegraphed. Um, it doesn't adapt so well to a close up. Um, and so, yes. Yeah, so for me, those scenes felt really, um, they didn't ring as true. I mean, I, I'm, you know, as someone who writes young adult novels, and regular adult novels like I can hop between the two I'm cool with that 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 facet of it worked for me um but it those scenes did feel a lot less um a lot less exciting for me also because um um yeah you know I had been all my friends had been going on and on about the hot priest in season two of Fleabag um <laughs> and so that when I when I watched it and found him profoundly unhot it was offensive to me, and now I hate him, um, which is probably very judgy of me. But that's where I'm. That's what I bring to that actor of like, I, dude. I, dude. I, I think that you must have. You have to be raised religious mm. in order to find him a hot priest, and it <laughs> definitely helps to be cis female and raised in religious. That's Fair. that's all I'm gonna. <laughs> the hot priest is definitely a thing. A Gabriel Byrne in whatever that stigmata movie or whatever, super hot. I mean, yeah. hot, uh, Joaquin Phoenix in that movie where he played the hot priest, super hot. It's a yeah. thing, no question. And, and, it's the and, unattainable part of it. Yes, and Fleabag is just so brilliant. I need to take every opportunity to tell people to see it because it's yeah. perfection. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but let, let me say, though, about that storyline, because, you know, as I said, I, I hadn't read the book, so I hadn't really no idea what the structure of the story was going to be. Um, and so my problems with the Lee Scoresby um, storyline was, was yeah, that it felt sort of more YA to me. But then also it, it ended up feeling kind of like a, a shaggy dog story to me because we spend so much time retrieving Will's dad. And then I'm maybe getting too far ahead, but, and, and, and then they ha- end up having this like 45 second conversation before he gets killed. And it, it was like, wait, we went through all of that, you know, for this. Oh, agree. Oh, I, so I mean, unfulfilling. The, the thing is though, you have to, un- like, you haven't read the second book. The second book makes the time that Will has with his father in the, in the series 
look incredibly luxurious. And it's one of the things that I felt like they corrected uh, in this series, because in the book, that scene is so much worse and so much more heartbreaking because they don't even acknowledge that, that it's father and son until after he's already died. Uh, he basically realizes that it's his father as he dies and they cut out, uh, and changed the, the reason why he died. In the books, he's actually killed by, um, a jealous witch or a scorned witch because he, uh, rejected her advances, uh, because he was still in love with his wife. And it's this wonderful thing that he is still dedicated to his wife. And even in another reality where he has little hope of returning to his own reality, he is so dedicated to her that he rejects this witch romantically. But I was never comfortable with that in the book. I felt like it didn't actually Agree. make sense because, you know, they, they build up the, the witches as being these incredibly wise and powerful women who are deeply connected to the earth and deeply connected to the laws of nature. And so for, for one of them to not only experience petty jealousy, but experience it to the, to the degree where she's willing to kill someone uh, for rejecting her romantically. It's just, I, I've never quite understood what Pullman was trying to say with that. So I, I do think that, that when you read the book, uh, you will be like, oh, okay, this is actually a really lovely scene that we were given, um, you know, that is infinitely better in, in my in my humble opinion from from the book. But it, it sounds like, though, from Aaron and Sam's reaction that they had sort of the same reaction I did. Yeah, and it wasn't so much about that scene specifically as that whole storyline seems to be a lot of investment for very little reward. Um and and that's and that's true of the book as well. And and I, and I completely agree. the The whole woman scorned murder at the at the end of that storyline was just an eye roll for me. It was one of the real sort of sour notes. There were few of them, but that was definitely one. It, it's not. It's it's such a it's a throwaway lazy storyline at the best of times. But in a book that has such and in a story and especially in the series that has such an interesting and uh, deliberate take on gender, it seemed profoundly tone deaf to me <laughs> to yeah. have this, this cliche, very sort of, uh, yeah, regressive type of, of, of story in there. Yeah. I mean, does anyone, was this just, was this the best they could do in terms of an adaptation, do you think? Or does anyone have any ideas about how this could have been made, have more, to have more impact? I, I do think that there is something important to Pullman in in it being unsatisfying, right? Like he, I think he is actually trying to say something there. Like he doesn't, Will doesn't get to have his dad. He just doesn't, and it, it's a theme throughout all three books um, that our parents are often disappointing. Um, and in the books, they talk about how Will uh, or Will's dad could not literally could not return home because he had entered the portal into this other universe in a blizzard. And so by the time they realized they were in another world, there was no way that they could find the, uh, the way back in. And so he became a shaman. He did all of these things in order to get back to his family. And that's what makes it so heartbreaking is, you know, he, he became all of these people and learned all of these skills in order to do this 
But in the end, what he ended up serving was this larger purpose. And I think that, you know, you just kind of have to let that be something that is important to Pullman. Uh, you know, but at least the series, you know, gave them a, a few tender moments together. And I, I really, I mean, that scene made me cry. Whereas in the, the books, I was just angry. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I prefer to have the emotional reaction. Yeah, well, I mean, because um, we we lost, I have a list here of four major characters I can think of that we lost in this season. So we've got Will's dad, we've got Lee Scoresby, uh, we've got Boreal, and we've got Giacomo, the guy that Will gets the um, the subtle knife from. And none of these deaths was really a home run for me. I could go into all of them, I guess. But um, I, I did think it was kind of weird having Will's dad and Lee both be killed by essentially stormtroopers um, that felt, you know, like not character based enough to me. And and like with very minimal like impact on the on the plot, like, it, you know, it's not like this is this. I mean, yes, it was a heroic sacrifice, but like that entire storyline, it just felt like was that really necessary for the plot? Like how much better would it have been without it? Or how much worse? I just think, like, I actually think what what Sarah was saying is zooming in on precisely what the problem was for me, which is that um, the whole it would have been so much more satisfying if um, we spent a little more time with that character as Will's father and a little less time of him rolling his eyes back and making it windy. Um, <laughs> like, I, I just I wanted. We, we get that discussion. Uh, it was very Walking Dead, if I could just interrupt myself and put myself in parentheses. You used to get to the point where you knew who was going to get chowed next on The Walking Dead because you suddenly got their life story out of nowhere. And it was kind of that way with, with Will's dad acknowledging his loss at the very last minute and in one scene and in one speech. It's all kind of crammed in there of like, oh, by the way, I couldn't get back to my family, but I really wanted to. And I think if they had woven that in more organically with some of the world building elements that we get from that storyline, then the loss, it's its not the loss that, that, that troubles me. And in fact, I think that blow would have landed harder. Um, it's that there just doesn't seem to be a lot of point to the storyline leading up to that loss. And I think, I think the meat is there and they could have explored it a little more instead of focusing on the sort of, uh, you know, Lee Scoresby drifting from point A to point B in, in, in search of something and having various speeches about how, how much he cares about Lyra. I just, I think they could have hung more meat on yeah. that. Well, this was reminding me of, I remember watching the Lord of the Rings special features and Peter Jackson talking about this issue where, you know, in the, the story is that, um, Boromir is going to get killed in this battle with a bunch of random Urukai. And he's like, and Peter Jackson's like, I felt like we need to have like one particular Urukai who's like a character. And so they built up this like Urukai with the white hand on his face to be like this character that you recognize and seems like, you know, so that when Boromir is killed and then um, Aragorn fights this, this orc and everything, it's not just like some random orc that you never saw before. And I wonder if they needed something like that here where there's some, That's a good point. you know, some character who's you know one of the um um magisterium soldiers has been built up some you know not it wouldn't have to be huge but at least we recognize it's not just some faceless stormtrooper it's like somebody that we've we've seen in a couple scenes before i mean i think part of the the issue though is is where this story is headed and obviously i can't 
I can't talk about that much because I don't want to, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but I, I it, suffice to say, Lyra doesn't know what her main objective is, and it's made quite clear that she's not supposed to know because if she knows, she won't do it. Um, and everybody else has a very vague understanding of what's going to happen, and they're happy to just sort of be supporting cast in getting her there, even though they don't, you know, again, really know what the main objective is. So I feel like it's realistic that, uh, that these supporting characters would die before really knowing why they were fighting this war and what the importance of what's to come and her, her eventual role in, in this series. Um, so I don't know. I mean, to me, it's sort of like you have to have some characters be killed by the stormtroopers in order to explain that the stormtroopers exist. You have to have, you know, the, the magisterium has this army. And if I feel like it, they would actually be more stormtrooper-like if they managed to always evade them. Because the thing about stormtroopers is that they're none of them are trained and their armor is useless and they're just not actually scary. But at least with with this, you get a sense that, okay, these are, are genuinely scary soldiers. They are have genuine skills. You know, they're not just put there as random bodies for obstruction. So, yeah. Uh, I want to I get Sam back in here. Sam, have we gotten up to the the thing you're furious about yet? Well, this is the this is the perfect segue because I think that um, you know Lee Scoresby and his sort of line is 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 a great sort of was a great key into it for me. Um, I feel like this season captures so much of the plot in a really great way, but not the character, not the characters. It doesn't give me like so when he's making these numerous speeches about his the about the intensity of his feelings for Lyra I wasn't feeling it and partially I wasn't feeling it because of his acting but partially I wasn't feeling it because we hadn't seen it and Lyra you know as much as she's like you know she's a you know the young woman's a great actress and um I love the books so she's very real in my mind um but I wasn't feeling like she's like this amazing um great compelling spirit that people are gladly sacrificing themselves for just because they didn't give those kind of character beats to really make us feel her. Um, and, and so overall I felt kind of like, Oh, I love the story. I love these characters. I love the way they brought it to the screen, but I wasn't feeling it in my heart and, and soul. I wasn't, I wasn't as in pain as I wanted to be. Um, and as the books made <laughs> me, um, because I just felt like they were, they were trying to do so much that, um, they were checking all the boxes, but, but something like something was missing. Um, so, so yeah, that, that was, that was frequently, um, like, like Lee Scoresby's best scene is the scene with, um, Mrs. Coulter. Um, but I think she's doing a ton of the work there. Um, and, um, yeah, I'm, I was just, I wanted, I wanted to feel more and I felt like the, this didn't, it didn't quite, didn't quite land in that way for Could me. Could you? Can we come back to Sam? You were saying that there's more of an environmental message in the books, and as I said, I haven't read it. So, like, what is um, like, what how is this different, or like, what's in the books that aren't in this? Uh, I think there's a few sort of like shots and 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 gestures. Um, like, like I feel like the only moment where we see York Born Bernson in, in this season is when he's looking at ice, uh, glaciers melting. Um, so there's like an attempt to bring it in there. I just think that. 
um, my memory of the books is um, while some things are super vivid and trauma traumatizing, and there were definitely triggering moments of that while watching the show, um, and especially in the um, you know very brief uh, post credit sequence on the last episode, um, I think that fundamentally, like the whole message of Pullman's books and the the, whole, the 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 reason the demons exist is to um, communicate this idea that humans have to exist in balance with nature, that they are one with nature, that nature lives in them, and that trying to separate them from that and trying to um, master and dominate um, the environment is, is going to lead to like horrific, nightmarish results. Um, and so I think that like a lot of things that aren't explored too deeply in this um in this season that that's that's one of them like i think that that plays out in a lot of ways in the books and it's not super present here for me in this season there is one scene that i'm very curious whether it will make the cut in uh in season three which obviously i can't explain but for those who have read the books um when uh york bernison comes across the dead body of um of lee scoresby something happens. And I, I am very curious to see if they include that in season three, because I, it, it's, it's, it would be really hard to translate, uh, to, to, to film. And I, I do think it would be one of those stronger, uh, hints of the sort of eco-feminism, uh, of the books as well that he mentioned. But while we're talking about Lee Scorsby, I feel like there's one person who should be, um, sort of sticking up for Lin-Manuel Miranda here because I actually, the only thing I have that I, I have issues with is his accent. He is very clearly not even trying to do a Texan accent or he is trying and failing so badly that it just comes across as vaguely Southern. But I feel like he actually, like to me, the the the, the movie, The Golden Compass that came out in 2007 or whatever, had a lot of caricatures in it, including Sam Elliott. Everybody loves Sam Elliott. I know I'll be crucified for this. And I love <laughs> Sam Elliott too. Don't get me wrong. But Sam Elliott is, came, is, was so much of a Texan. To me, he felt like a caricature. And it's like all you got was the accent. And part of it is that he, his character doesn't become as important as in the first, you know, ultimately the first movie. If we had gotten subsequent movies, we might have seen more of the tenderness. But to me, uh, Miranda's you know, just sort of depiction of the tenderness of the character is something that Sam Elliott's character lacked. And you saw the same thing with Egyptians in the, in the film, The Golden Compass. The Egyptians were treated as basically gypsies. They were almost ridiculous. They were all wearing weird, weird makeup. Like they, they weren't being treated respectfully as a group. Whereas the Egyptians in his dark materials, the series are beautifully handled as clearly having their very own rich culture and it's very respectful so anyway i just felt like one of us should, <laughs> should stick up for miranda i i totally feel what you're saying i i think it would be nice if we could smash those two together because i think what sam elliott yeah. <laughs> brought and what he brings is that world weary wisdom that you expect to see in a traveler adventurer of the stripe of lee scoresby Whereas what Manuel brings, Manuel Miranda brings is um, tenderness, but also naivety. And I think that that naivety doesn't quite fit with the character, as charming as it is. Um, it doesn't quite fit with the character. And so you, 
you don't buy him, at least I didn't buy him as this world weary traveler. He's missing the, the, that kind of um, Han Solo rambling kind of thing. So if you could kind of smash those two together, I think hmm. you would have Lee Scoresby as I imagined him. Um, yeah, somewhere in yeah. between should be would be good because I mean the character is supposed to be fifty nine when he dies, and so Sam Elliott is entirely too old, whereas Lin Manuel Miranda is entirely too young. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I want to go back to Mrs. Coulter, who, as I said, I, I just thought was so fascinating in this season, and Sam uh, I think mentions this um, part or this scene, but I want to I want to highlight this. So there's a part where she's talking to Boreal, and she says. Did you know when I was an honorary scholar, I achieved the highest results in our final examination, but because I was a woman, I was denied a doctorate by the magisterium. I've written plenty of papers, but they're only published if I agree to let a man take the credit for them. Do you know who I could have been in this world? And I just think, um, you know, she's such an interesting character because she's very icy. She's very evil, but she loves her daughter at some level and has these sort of interesting, um, you know, she, she's an incredible control of her emotions, but obviously has a lot of very strong emotions. And it's just, um, you know, ha- and has these sort of flashes of of humanity, but then, you know, is just also very ruthless. Um, so I just want to talk more about what people thought about that character and how she developed in this season. Um so I don't know, Aaron, Aaron, what did you um what did you make of that scene I just I just mentioned there with Boreal and kind of following the character, tracking the character forward through the season? Um honestly, I think that might be one of my favorite scenes in the whole series so far. Um I I just the the performance of Mrs. Coulter and the way that she's written um are just so brilliant in this series. I I just I can't get enough of it. And it's funny because, you know, when we first started watching season two, my husband couldn't remember much about season one. And he said, she's evil, right? And I said, <laughs> she's complicated. <laughs> and I, I stand by that. Like, she's not evil per se. It's she's been sort of molded into an evil person, but she's much more interesting and complicated than that. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask, though, um, for, for those who remember the books better than I do, I don't remember this... Um, this very gendered part of of the books. I, I don't remember that narrative coming out as strongly. This sense that that Mrs. Coulter has this seething rage that she could not become the person that she was always meant to be. I mean, you see that. I remember seeing that in her interactions with Azriel, a sort of a combination of like her fascination with him is is kind of equal parts um, admiration and straight up jealousy, like envy and jealousy bound together in, in one where she sort of sees that they could have been kindred spirits, but she could never be him because she was a woman. So I, I know yeah. it's there, but I don't recall, maybe it was just because I was a different person at the time. I don't recall feeling that bubble up the way that it does in the series. And I just love it. And I particularly love how, how it's bound up with the, the patriarchy of the magisterium. Um, because I think that feels very genuine to me. Um, but I don't remember. Can anyone enlighten me? It, Is it, that there? It was definitely added. I mean, that scene especially was added. And and I, it, it's one of the things that I was talking about in the beginning about how pleased I was that they very richly elaborated on this character. And I say elaborated because I really do believe that a lot of this is coming from Pullman. Um, I, I think that uh, Marisa is a Phyllis Schlafly character. 
Um, I think that <laughs> she is supposed to be this sort of self-hateful woman who has been brought up in this environment where she in some way, ways has, you know, Stockholm syndrome, uh, and in other ways has decided that she is going to play this game better than everybody else in order to beat it. And because of that, there are things that she has decided that to kill within herself that she shouldn't have. And there are things that, that she has sacrificed in order to have strength. And it's deeply tragic. There are, there's so much to, to say about and think about this character. Um, if you are familiar with the things that Christian women and religious women have done to themselves and to others in order to survive in this kind of environment. And so Marisa feels to me like these powerful women of the church that I grew up with who were, you know, uh, holding their hands over a candle in the dark in order to, you know, self-flagellate them. You know, it's just, it's, she's it a, is you know, an she, extraordinary depiction. She's an Ibsen character, isn't she? Isn't she yeah. basically Hedda Gabler? <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I don't like, I, I, it's just, I agree with you 100%. What, what they've brought to this character and, and definitely again, credit to the performance. Um, but what they've brought to this character really is just above and beyond. Yeah. Uh, Sam, what'd you think of Mrs. Coulter? Definitely fantastic. Um, you know, there were actually, there were scenes that I found super hard to watch. I think the way they are communicating her self-harm um, and her relationship with her demon, which is so hor- horrific and disturbing and like makes me like, like that was probably the most emotionally engaged I felt the whole season of like that, the, the horror of of subjecting her, her, her demon, who is every bit as like morally reprehensible as she is, um, to, to that kind of like the tortures that, that, that she puts him through, um, and, and sort of getting into who she is, why she's so angry, what she wants. Um, yeah, I think, I think it was an amazing performance. Um, uh, of, of the four deaths that you listed, uh, David, Boreal's was the one that really worked for me. I love that character. I, I, he's one of my favorites and I was really sad to see him go. I thought that that performance also managed to communicate so much, um, above and beyond the lit, the little that was in the script, um, for that character. Um, and so their relationship, their scenes, the sort of like game that he was playing versus the game that she was playing was brought to such a interesting and, and in, for me, really successful head. Um, but yeah, she's, she, um, Mrs. Coulter is, is one of my favorite literary villains. Um, you know, with an asterisk, cause of course she's much more complex than just a villain. Um, but it, it totally worked for me even slash because it was rough to watch. Well, let me, let me tell you what my issue was with Boreal's death. And I, I just want to read this as another little thing they say in that same conversation. Um, Mrs. Coulter says, and were you hoping to add me to your little collection of treasures? And he says, I was hoping that this might be a life you'd want to share. And she says, my dear Carlo, if you actually got me, you wouldn't begin to know what to do with me. And so, yeah, so he's kind of, you know, he's interested in her romantically and she's clearly not interested in in him romantically. And I thought that that line made that so apparent that, um, it was, it was a little bit inexplicable to me that he's still, that he, that he doesn't see the danger that he's in, uh, more clearly. But I thought that, you know, when she, and when she kills him, she says, you know, you would have only have held me back or something like that. And I felt like that's not actually true at this point because, you know, he's, he has all these, uh, resources on earth. I mean, it, it, it seems like, you know, there's, there's all sorts of ways she could, she could use him, which would 
be more useful to her than just killing him at this point. But so I thought it, I, I, I was fine with him, with her killing him at this point, but I thought it should have been, it needed to be a little bit more motivated. And so to me, uh, to at me this, sorry, like to me, that line, it's, it's not true, but it doesn't ring false because it's what like, like she's angry. She has rage that she doesn't know what to do with that. She takes yeah. out on things that she should love, like her demon that is part of herself. So to me, that line is less about like, um, I hate you and you're useless. It's more like I'm so full of anger that I have to destroy. Um, and while I do want to like create productive destruction that will change the world, I also will like fuck people up for no reason. <laughs> um, well, let me just wait, wait. <laughs> Wait, wait, let me just let me just finish my sentence. Then. Um, but so yeah, but I, so I thought what should have happened is, and, and her poisoning him seemed a little random to me. And so we she we've just gotten to the point in the story where she's discovered that she can control the specters by. I wasn't entirely clear. Somehow it said in Wikipedia by suppressing her humanity. Uh, that was a little bit opaque to me. But anyway, she can control these these specter monsters, and she's about to go off on this very dangerous journey into the wilderness where she has no weapons. And I thought that. Uh, it maybe would have made a little bit more sense to me if she had ordered a specter to kill Boreal as a proof of concept that the specters would kill for her, because that's something that's some information she needs to know um, uh, going into this dangerous situation. Um, and so I, I thought it should have been something like that that was a little bit more vo- more, more motivated than just this random poisoning. Um, but but Sarah, go ahead. Um, I mean, it, it made sense for me for the character. And I think the, that it existed, that scene existed to let us know who this woman is. Um, like, he does not genuinely respect her. And she knows that. He probably thinks that her being as strong as she is, is kind of a little bit of a rebellion. I, I, it's kind of like, you know, when I was, uh, going through sort of transition of not being a religious person anymore in my late teens, I noticed that there were men in the church who were sort of turned on by the idea of women being rebellious feminists. Uh, it's a very icky thing, uh, that I really don't want to go further into, but there was, there was, there was an, an ickiness that, that came out of the more you rebelled, the more they wanted to control you. Um, and yeah. And she, you know, when, when Boreal goes into Mary Malone's office and Boreal says that weird thing, Oh, I love women with a work ethic. And she looks at him like he's got three heads because that is an insanely sexist thing to say in her world. Her world is basically our world. She is a professor, you know, she's published and she's respected. And it's, it's a completely, uh, dismissive thing for her, for him to say. And it tips her off immediately that this guy is not quite, uh, you know, honest about his motivations and makes her feel that sense of smarminess toward him as a character. And so I feel like when Mrs. Coulter disposes of Boreal, she genuinely believes that his usefulness has, you know, peaked and she will not need him at this point. Um, you know, and she's not a person who, who just brings as many people to her side as she can in the hopes that they might be useful later. She is genuinely like, I am on this power trip of needing to be better than all of the men in the room because of this trauma and because of the way she was raised and all of this stuff. So I, I completely bought it. Uh, Aaron, go ahead. 
I mean, not not much to add. I, I have I have a lot to say on the subject of men who are uh, attracted to tempestuous women for the sake of <laughs> controlling them. But uh, anyways, yeah. that's that's another conversation, well, <laughs> and we'll, we'll reveal some 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 twenty something trauma. But well, <laughs> well, what, well, what, what do you, I mean? What what does anyone want to respond to my idea about um, having her use a specter to kill him? Is there pros or cons? What are the pro? What what what, what do you think would be the pros or cons of that? I I would say that it would be a, a satisfying thing to see, um, provided that it doesn't spoil anything coming down the line, any sort of suspense that we're meant to feel down the line. I personally didn't find her chosen method of assassination to be uh, a- objectionable or, or meaningful one way or the other. Um, I think she just disposed of him in a way that felt... It felt appropriate to me just because it was so like he would, he just would never see it coming and absolutely should have seen it coming. And it was just such a like, I, you know, there, there wasn't any violence or emotion to it. Like she wasn't even going to give him the satisfaction of, of giving him a violent death because that would show that she actually cared. She told him straight up, you know, like she's like, I just murdered you. Like she did not do that thing where she's going to pretend like, Oh, are you feeling unwell? Are you okay? Would you, would you like some water? You know, like like a more cowardly person would have done. She was just like, "Yep, I straight up poisoned you, and I don't need you, and I don't love you." And you you see this tear fall out of his eye. You almost feel sorry for him. And for a character who's relatively evil, it's an accomplishment that we felt bad for him in that moment. But you know, it was an extraordinary thing to watch her character uh, to to not only murder him, but just to tell him that that's what she was doing. The other um, part with Mrs. Culture that, that really gave me chills that I wanted to mention is when Lyra's demon, Pentalimon, is attacking Mrs. Coulter's demon, the, the golden monkey. And uh, it was just like really, really brutal um, and, and just really, really gripping. And, um, you know, and there is this, this, um, this parallel we were talking about last time where, where Lyra is clearly sort of like a younger, you know, is sort of following that same path to be like her mother. And, you know, and I I guess is probably going to have to make a choice uh, along those lines. Um, But um, Sam, is there anything else you want to say about Mrs. Coulter and her uh, golden monkey before we move on? I mean, specifically to that scene you just mentioned, I love it because she says, I'm nothing like you, mom, and then does exactly the same horrific like thing that her mother did to her, um, which in the universe of, of that, that she comes from, like for one demon to touch another demon without consent for, for a human to touch another person's demon without consent is like unspeakably is an unspeakable transgression. It, it only ever happens in like intimacy. Um, and so that it's, it's really brutal. And she goes after her mom and her mom's demon with like horrific brutality. There's no reason for it. It's not strategic because the strategic thing to do would be to help will, um, who's calling for her. Um, so yeah, I, I love that scene. More, more great acting, uh, uh, on the part of both, uh, Lyra and Mrs. Coulter. Yeah. And then later Lyra says, I didn't like being her, you know, I didn't, I didn't like, uh, doing that, you know, like she tells Will, she confides in it. Like she was testing it because her mother had done it to her. And she was effectively trying it out, you know, like she, she knew that she has this inside of her, that she's starting to see that she does have aspects of herself within that are from her mother. And she sort of 
you know, trying it on for size and deciding that it's not for her. And there was a lot of power in just her just saying that, that I didn't like it. Yeah. All right. So I think the next thing I want to get into is the the sort of religious stuff that happens toward the in the last couple episodes. But before we get to that, uh, is there anything else about the show just in general that anyone wants to bring up before we kind of get into the the stuff toward the end of the season? No. No. All right. So let's get into the last couple episodes. So one of the um well, I mean this is actually from a little bit earlier. But this is one of these other scenes involving Mary Malone that just really gave me chills is that so she has this um, this supercomputer called the cave, which I think is a, a reference to Plato's cave. And it's a quantum computer. And um, and somehow um, it's going to allow her to interact with the, the dust. And in the course of this con, and so she starts talking to the dust and it, it comes out that the dust is the same thing as dark matter, which is the same thing as angels. And so she's basically talking to an angel. And so she says, you've always been there. And the angel says, making, stimulating, guiding. And she says, so does that mean angels have intervened in human evolution? And the angel says, yes. And she says, but why? And the angel says, vengeance. Yeah, I like that. And it's just, oh, it gives me like a, such a, a shiver just thinking about that. I don't, since I haven't read the third book, I don't know exactly what that means, but it was very, very intriguing. Um, but yeah, so we, we kind of get this idea that, and it's sort of um, it's sort of intimated that that Lyra is somehow Eve or like a reincarnation of the biblical Eve uh, somehow, and there's going to be this sort of war in heaven. I get the strong uh, impression, um, and so some stuff along these lines is yeah. So the subtle knife, uh, its name is Asaheter, which is a Norse word meaning God destroyer. Uh, there was kind of an interesting note. It says, um, it is possible that the knife may have been inspired by St. By Saint Michael's sword in Paradise Lost, which was specifically designed by God to cut through even the substance of angels. Um, so that's pretty cool. Um, I mean, I, I guess you guys all kind of know where this is going, but is there anything anything interesting to say about this without spoiling book three? Just, I would say that the interpretation of each character depends on um, who the character is. Not a, It's not a, like, when Mrs. Coulter learns that her daughter is Eve, she immediately concludes that it's Eve before the fall and that her responsibility is to protect Eve from ever falling, to protect Lyra from ever growing up, to protect her from ever sinning, right? Which is incorrect. Let's just put it that way. But it is it is interesting and it's relevant to each how each character perceives that piece of information that it isn't just, oh, this is the prophecy and this is what it is and this is what it means. It's that, you know, the the um, the authority, the uh, the magisterium is interpreting this prophecy as to how it's going to affect them in ways that they cannot even begin to dream of what actually happens in the third book, which is going to be absolutely fascinating to watch i'm so excited <laughs> i have no idea how they're going to make it happen on screen but you know given what we've seen thus far i think that they are clearly up to the task well there, there's a moment when um when mrs coulter sees lyra and will together she says to lyra something like you stay away from that boy he will only ruin you or something which you know so we, we definitely see how her that's um, what's her experience with person, has been, personal you experience know? yeah mm -hmm. yeah um, Aaron, anything 
you can tell me without spoilers about any of this this religious stuff. <laughs> any of this religious? I mean, stuff? you probably do. You, you you might not even remember the. <laughs> I third book I don't remember well. that much about the third book, but I remember the the big beats. Um, I would say that it's in the sort of in the third book that we get a little bit closer to. I was talking earlier about the sort of the difference between faith and religion, um, and you know. This I have, I have a friend who became Catholic um, relatively recently, who's um, is extremely intellectual about all of these things, and I, I um, about everything, and and I find that fascinating and query him a lot about what's interesting about this, and um, and he talks a lot about the way sort of the way people interpret um, interpret the scriptures, but also interpret faith. Um, and so the, to, to go back to the, the question of like, um, you know, Mrs. Coulter's interpretation of, of Eve before the fall and needing to be protected. It's to me, it's less about what she's got wrong and more about the conclusions that she draws about what is right based on the objective facts that are presented to her. Um, how she sorts those facts according to her worldview. And, and that's how you get from, you, you cover this what seems to be an insane distance between the concept of an all-knowing, all-powerful, loving God to the institution that man created on earth to represent that. Um, and I, and I think so that this is just all a long way of saying, I, I think that what you see in, in the third act of this um, touches on that in a way that we haven't really got to yet. Yeah. I guess I'll just, this is one other line. This is one other like tidbit that we get uh, is uh, Serafina says she, she meaning Lyra is the child that shall bring about the end of destiny and return of free will. So um, yeah. So this is what I gather is that Azrael wants to fight God in order to, uh, uh, you know, bring, you know, some, somehow uh, strengthen the existence of free will in the world. And that this is why, I mean, obviously I know that the, you know, the, his dark materials is a reference to, um, to, to Milton's paradise lost and everything. So that's the fundamental conflict of the universe, isn't it? Order versus chaos. I mean, everything kind of boils down to that. Um, and this is basically a story of that, of that struggle. I just wanted to add at this moment that, because I feel like it's a really good important point to bring up here is that, uh, James McAvoy was supposed to have an episode that was supposed to be our Lord Asriel episode. And we did not get that because of the pandemic, because they were filming. And the only thing that they had left to film was this Lord Asriel episode. And when the pandemic hit, that was the only thing they hadn't filmed. And so we didn't get that episode. And so there was a whole article, I forget which publication, uh, you know, posted it. But uh, what, you know, speculating what we might have seen. But I am absolutely heartbroken that we didn't get that because there was very little of Lord Asriel in this season. And it's, you know, his role is important. So I'm hoping that they will give us extra episodes in the third season. Yeah, well, that's because there were only seven episodes in the season and there were eight in season one. So, yeah, yeah so there, the last episode was supposed to be an all Asriel episode or was it supposed well, to be in not- the middle somewhere? It, I don't know whether whether it was supposed to be in the middle somewhere, but it was supposed to be filmed last. So just because of the way that their schedules had all worked out. And so it, for all we know, it might have been the pilot episode of this season, uh, but it was definitely filmed last or would have been if it were not for the pandemic. 
Hmm. Yeah, for me, the other, like, again, I think this was hugely successful. I loved it. Um, I love so many things about it. Um, it's one of the best opening credit sequences in recent years. I just love it every time I love the music, um, every time it comes on. For me, the other real casualty, though, besides the sort of complexity of Lyra's character and the emotions that I should feel for her and her relationships um, is that sort of like bigger picture story. Like for all the scenes of the witches sort of like being ominous and um, heavy about like everything hangs on the fate of this girl. Um, there's not a lot about what that means. There's not a lot about the bigger picture of like what the what you know like okay so eve exists in in the in lyra's world in the world of the magisterium and um there's some obvious concordances between their um bible for want of a better word and ours um but the idea of a war with the angels what the authority is like i think that um if you don't know that when they talk about the authority they mean god it'll take you a couple episodes to figure that out um so yeah for me i didn't i didn't feel that as much and i wanted that and i think that's kind of necessary for setting up the the last season um and yeah i think that that having more time with with Azrael to sort of see that like what is his mission what is his what is he trying to do um, would have been really helpful. Like all we got, the only thing that survived was that scene at the very end of him sort of standing there calling on the angels for, for, for their help, um, and getting it. But, um, I'm super excited about where it's going to go. And I think they can totally pull it off. I just felt like there was maybe one too many ominous conversation without the necessary details to, to make you really feel that. When you're talking about the witches, this is just kind of a random thought I had. But, you know, there's a scene where one of the witches is flying basically through a like lightning storm. And I was kind of like, you know, I never really thought about it before with characters who fly. But that must really suck if you're like on a long flight somewhere and you're just getting rained on the whole time. <laughs> you know, I'm like, do you need an umbrella or like a raincoat or something? Or, well, they can't I don't feel know why... cold. The witches can't feel cold. That's why they're always okay. half naked. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I did. I did love the way they were acted. Right. I mean, I think so often we meet in fantasy, um, we meet the characters who are supposedly immortal or extremely long lived and all knowing and above petty human emotions, but they act exactly like Joe Schmo on the corner. Um, and these felt so other, so Shakespearean, so like um, uh, they felt like a really successful uh, embodiment of of a different worldview um so i, I love them and i love their scenes yeah. and i love that scene where mrs coulter's torturing one of them by using the tweezers to pull the sort of i've forgotten what they're called but essentially like the little bits of tree branch out from under her skin Clap it was mine. it was so i mean it, it's just it's um completely foreign as as a method of torture obviously um it's, it's so intrinsic to the world, and yet it was so effective. And I think, again, that's partly down to the performance. Yeah, so I was, I mean, I, I actually didn't know that, that the witches can't feel cold. So I guess that makes sense. But I was just thinking, like, just in general with characters who fly, like, you never think about them getting rammed on the whole time that they're flying. And I wonder if they could, could they fly above the clouds? Or like being bored, bored, bored on an eight-hour flight. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly, yeah. Well, they're they're at one with nature, Dave. So you know, if it's raining, then they're cool with the rain. <laughs> but like, no, I no, actually, I, 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 I love that though that those characters were portrayed as very earthy because I feel like the temptation in fantasy novels to pull Lord of the Rings and have the 
you know, angelic type characters be just these glowing, you know, like the way that they lit Kate Blanchett with something like 10,000 Christmas lights uh, in, in Lord of the Rings to make her look like this glowing human being without skin. Uh, whereas the witches in this series literally have pieces of tree, pieces of cloud pine embedded under their skin to look like it's, you know, it's, it's their veins. Uh, and it was, it's a very cool uh, thing to, to see them that way. I just thought that was Kate Blanchett's luminous complexion. Yeah, she's like that in real life. <laughs> no, Sarah, I take your point that these witches, you know, are unaffected by the rain and cold and stuff. I'm just thinking of all the other fantasy characters who have been flying all these years, and I never really thought about how miserable that must be if they get rained on and stuff like that. Like in Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or like the um, the hobbits riding the eagles. There should just be a scene where the hobbits are riding the eagles in Lord of the Rings, and they're just getting rained on the whole time. They're like, man, this is or air sick. I mean, I mean, there, Hello, does there the, is stuff no air sick? in the in the <laughs> Harry Potter books. There, there are scenes where, like, because it's raining and stormy, then he has a harder time playing Quidditch. So there you go, Dave. All right, all right, <laughs> um, all right. So I mean, we're pretty much out of time. Um, so I guess let's uh, let's go into some final thoughts here. So uh, Sam, final thoughts on season two. I loved it. I can't wait for season three. Um, I really, I keep telling myself I want to reread the books and then being like, no, because I, I enjoy experiencing it with this, you know, same degree of, of, um, of question of like, is this in the books? Did they do that? Like, I, I like, I think, I think <laughs> they're doing a good job of it. Um, I, I, as with the first season, I have some issues. Um, but I'm so happy to see this story brought to life so, so vividly and so successfully. And, um, and with so much, I mean, I, I think there's just so much to say about it. It's so thought provoking and contains so many big ideas that I think it's really special that it exists in, in television. Yeah. Uh, Aaron, final thoughts. Yeah. What he said. Um, I, I can't, I really <laughs> can't wait for, for season three. And I just hope that, uh, the pandemic doesn't delay it so much that, uh, <laughs> we all have to go all the way back to the beginning. Um, because apparently I have a hard time remembering things that I've seen and read. Um, but, but I, I also am debating whether da I Daphne Keen to... will be 28 when season exactly. three comes out. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am debating whether I want to go back to the Amber Spyglass. Like I, I also have mixed feelings about it because on the one hand it bothers me. I, I'm puzzled by how little I remember, but on the other hand, it's kind of nice to experience it fresh and, and they've earned my trust over the first two seasons that they will be faithful, um, to the letter for the most part and certainly in spirit. Um, and so it, it's almost worth kind of just going along for the ride and, and maybe, maybe I'll reread the, the Amber Spyglass after. Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely looking forward to season three, especially with what Sarah said about how, like, she's not even sure how they're going to put it on screen. That makes me very intrigued. I mean, if it's not clear from this, I, I, I thought, I thought, I think that this season is great and everyone should watch it. I mean, as I said, like some parts of it were a little too YA for me, but, uh, overall, I think it's just a, a really, really great um adaptation of this material and i'm so happy i finally got my like atheist fantasy you know tv series that i always wanted um but so sarah final thoughts on season two uh i guess i just want to say that anyone who who does want to read the books before season three the audiobooks are absolutely wonderful the you know uh, philip pullman reads them himself it's one of the most delightful voices of of an author um, in terms of audiobooks and the, um, you know, I, I, I really love audiobooks in general. Like I, I love that I can listen to them 
while I'm doing dishes. I probably wouldn't do dishes if at all, if it weren't for audiobooks. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the being able to get through seasons two or uh, books two and three via the audiobooks to watch what's coming next, because I really think that you almost need to read the third book to know what's happening to let it percolate before season three hits. At the same time, I'm jealous of the people who will experience season three without knowing what's going to happen. Um, but anyway, and I also wanted to add, since we brought up Fleabag, um, that, you know, that is not science fiction or fantasy at all, but is also brilliant, um, that Phoebe Waller-Bridge voiced uh, John Perry's demon in this series. So there you go. It all comes back to Fleabag. And she is she's like she's like the main character in Fleabag or something. Yeah. Okay. She wrote it. She is the main character. She's brilliant. She's hilarious. Yeah, that, that's super cool. Okay, so and and I, I mentioned this last time, but yeah, I listened to the audiobook of book one of of his Dark Materials, and it was one of the best audiobooks I've ever listened to. So yeah, definitely, uh, audio is 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 definitely one way to go with that. Um, but yeah, so let's, uh, wrap things up there and we'll all come back again for season three, I'm sure. But for, for now, we've been speaking with Aaron Lindsay, Sarah Lynn Mishner and Sam J. Miller. So thanks everyone so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. See you next time. Bye. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Aaron Lindsay, Sarah Lynn Mishner and Sam J. Miller for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.